Hey there, uh, just a quick disclaimer before we get into the video. Uh, this is a follow-up to a previous video where we briefly introduced the doctrine of the filioque and why it's so divisive and the two different models of the Trinity that we get as a result. Uh, if you'd like to learn more about that, I've got a description to that video linked uh, both here at this point in the video and in the description as well. In this video, we're sitting down with Andy Nichols. Andy is a Protestant pastor. He is a professor and he's a PhD candidate under John Baer. Andy's got a unique perspective because he's a Western Christian, but he holds to the more Eastern view of the monarchy of the father and he rejects the filioque. So in this video, he's going to teach us why and we're going to push back with some questions of our own. So I hope you enjoy. It just There are no passages that say that. And, and really in the early church, you know, it takes 375 years for someone to suggest that. I think it's just, that's like a significant point. Well, with us today is Andy Nichols again. I say again because if you listen to the Desert Fathers series, you already got to meet this wonderful man and learn all about all the smart things that he does and stuff that he knows. So I won't reintroduce it. Uh, instead, I'll ask a completely different question to kind of introduce you. What do you like to do for fun? Fun? Yeah. Well, I've got uh, I've got two little girls at home that I play dolls with. That sounds and, like uh, um and then after everyone's asleep and I, I like to, I mean, I, I read Tolkien. I was, I'm reading the fall of Numenor right now, which is kind of the nerdy second age stuff in Tolkien's universe. Um, I also, I mean, I played the same video games for 20 years in a row now. <laughs> so, yeah. So, I mean, I, yeah, I, I, I do have some spare time of, of fun that I relax with and calm my mind down, but most of my time's with my family. Yeah. Cool. What do you play? If you don't mind my asking. Yeah, so I played. I started playing RuneScape twenty. No uh, way! I remember that. Yeah, and uh, they brought back. And when I was in college, they brought back like an old school version of it, and I, I played that. I mean, it, some people do it for a living. I play a few hours every week, <laughs> if if I if I have the time to, but it's it's a nice way to be nostalgic, I guess. Yeah, it's also some people who play that for a living. I don't know if you know, but the, the mafia uses it for money laundering. Yes. All that sale of coins and stuff like oh that. Gosh. Of like the coins. It's crazy, man. The dark side of RuneScape. I never thought no, seriously, I, about I, that. I know a guy, he would earn $5,000. I forget if it was a month or a week, which is a big difference. But like he was earning a lot of money off of it. Oh, yeah. Totally the, illegally. So yeah, the, there's, a, there's, a whole, there's a whole black market in, in Venezuela for people to make more money by playing the game than by working. So, what? This is not related to the filioque or trinitarian yeah. models, but is there a documentary on that? I want to see that. Oh yeah, there's, there's there are. There, oh my, I'm going to text you after this and say, can you yeah. share the documentary with me? Yeah. Oh my gosh, we should probably start talking about theology though. So I, I think it's probably most helpful to start by just defining some words so that way everyone knows what we're talking about. Um, we're going to use these words: monarchy of the father. We're going to talk about relations of origins or subsistent relations, depending on just which one you like to use more. And we're going to use this word filioque. So could could you just explain to us what those three things are? Yeah. So monarchianism uh, is essentially the belief that the father is the source, the first principle, the arche um, of the son and the spirit. And particularly two texts are vital and understanding this, 
that the Son is begotten of the Father and the Spirit proceeds from the Father, both scriptural phrases. And it is not to say that that happened in time as if they were created, but it is to say that uh, when the scripture speaks of the relationship between the Father-Son or the Spirit and the Father, that it is from the Father. And so the monarchy is that the whole Trinity holds together in the person of the Father. Now I say that, that's a short version, but I say that um, generally that's that's the Eastern view. I mean, I'm a minister in Missouri, so it's not exclusive to the Orthodox. And in the West, you have a lot of confusing, and by confusing, I mean ambiguous statements of that through the centuries, and we can talk about those. But in the Western view, the Trinity holds together more so, so we're speaking about the relations, the, the Trinity holds more together with the essence. So the monarchy is the Father, the Trinity is of the essence, and uh, the Trinity holds together the essence. Aquinas, just to you know, put it clearly, Aquinas says that whatever is not of the divine essence is created, and therefore, or creature, and, and therefore the relationships between the Father, Son, and the Spirit are of the divine essence, not in relation to the Father. So to, to put it crudely, but I think accurately, the, the Eastern view has focused primarily on the Trinity holding together in the Father, while the Western view has held together primarily through the essence of what it means to be God. Now, the most kind of important distinction and controversy around this is, has been known what's known as the Filioque controversy. The Filioque is just, it's just the phrase that was added to the Council of Nicaea by the Western Church and it simply means the, the sun also, or and the sun. Um, and typically what that means is, just to, again to say it crudely and briefly, that the sun and the father, the father and the son, precede the spirit. So the original Nicene Creed says, and we believe in the spirit, who proceeds from the father. That's still how it's said in the Eastern church. It's still how it's, I have a mug that's printed with this on it. So it's not just you know, exclusively in the, you know, the Greeks and the Russians or and all of that. It, some some in the West say it this way, but the Western Church, following Augustine, following several other kind of key figures in the development, eventually were okay adding this to the way the creed is said, and <clears throat> yeah, that's that's the summary. Maybe later we can go into greater detail about you know what that is, but in brief, that's what the terms mean. I think again, just to reiterate, monarchianism is not to say that the the Son and the Spirit are created but that the whole of the Trinity holds together from the person of the Father, not of the nature of God, while all three persons in both views have the same essence, have the same nature. Yeah. I'm going <clears> to <throat> kind of ask a follow-up question to all of that. So we've kind of defined what all of these different things are, and we use a lot of words and a lot of concepts that people probably aren't familiar with. Yes. Um, and so I think I think a question of care is is relevant. I actually have a memory of uh, eating dinner with one of my elders, and I was learning about the filioque for the first time. And I was thinking about mentioning it in a sermon, and I was trying to explain it to him, and I was doing it very poorly, and I was talking about sources and stuff, and he was just looking at me like, "What the heck are you talking about? And why the heck should I care about any of this? Like, can we just read the Bible and?" follow Jesus. And so, and, and I feel like a lot of people are probably wondering that. And so if, for those of us who are not an academic, is there anything at stake here? Does this, does this matter to us? Why, why should we care? Yeah. Yeah. Well, 
I think the most simple way and one of the clearest ways of understanding why this matters is that our salvation is dependent on our ability to call God Father. You know, the Father sends the Son, the Son, you know, through the Son, the Spirit comes, and it's the Spirit of adoption that because Jesus became our brother, we receive the Spirit by which we can call God Father. And so I haven't, you know, as, as Romans eight fifteen would say, I haven't received a spirit of fear, reading slavery again, I've, but I've received a spirit by which I call God Father. And generally speaking, <clears throat> I have found that the more understanding I have of this, the greater understanding I have for what it means that Jesus allows me to approach the Father. Hmm. And the Spirit is perfecting in me the ability of calling God my Father. Yeah. So, you know, understanding salvation and understanding the work of the Spirit and of, of Christ within me is is vital, I think. Yeah. That's a that's a pretty that's a pretty big reason. All right. Yeah. Yeah. So all right. Th those were kind of the preliminary questions just to kind of get us into the conversation. And this is kind of the meat where I just want to let you take over and say and share and do whatever you want. Um, we have you on because you accept uh, the the Trinity model of, of monarchy. Uh, could you persuade us, teach us like like why? Why is that the more appropriate way of understanding the triune God? Yeah, I, I, I'm happy to. I'd, I'd like to give just a brief kind of most important point. But then I'd like to kind of go historically and through through what has convinced me of this most. I mean, this is not where I began. And to be honest, when I began, it was like, oh, I, I don't know which way and I don't care. Um, but the more I've investigated and the more I've been taught, the more I, I feel like this is actually something worth discussing. Um, so for me, the most important reason is that if the procession of the spirit is is not only from the Father, it's also from the Son. Then is it also accurate to say that the Son is begotten of the Spirit? And if it's actually of the essence to be begetting and to precede, you know, persons, if that's within the nature of God, then by definition, the Son and the Spirit must also beget and precede others. And so you actually get into this, what Photius, and I'll, I'll speak about him later, but what Photius called, you know, the the uh, the multitude of the persons there's 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 a sense in which if you don't have the whole trinity holding together in the father then you cannot if you hold it to the essence you cannot limit it to three that unless it is begotten of the father and holding together in his person then you must also say that is the case with the essence the same essence that the son and the spirit have um and this is a more general point but i think that um the, the personhood of God is a better place to start in understanding what we mean by the nature of God. But that that I'll come back to that later. Um, I, I want to just mention, you know, some highlights for me that through the centuries of, of the church, some documents that came up. Most most importantly, and kind of kind of the one that started all this for me is when I first read through Irenaeus, is a second century Christian, and he wrote a very large, long work, beautiful work called Against Heresies. And he's refuting all sorts of different things. But within that book, he speaks, you know, primarily the, the books of Against Heresies follow the same pattern of there's the Father, the Son, and the Assembly. And so he speaks kind of going through different arguments, talking about the Father, Son, and Assembly. And at one point, he gets to discussing creation in book four and in book five. And he speaks of the, of the Spirit and the Son as 
the two hands of God, as if they were the wisdom and the word, is what he calls them, as if they were what he used for creation. And so this is, a, I mean, this is a very early way of thinking of the Trinity. Um, personally, just to just to kind of add this in there, um, when Christ is speaking in in the New Testament, and I think this is far more important than you know what Irenaeus would say, but this is how this is what started, and I'm kind of going chronologically with how my mind worked on this. When the scriptures speak of Jesus talking of the Father and of the Son, you know, um, he he'll say things like, "The Father is greater than I." Okay, now that that sort of statement sits uneasy with many early Christians, but the way that say Gregory of Nazianzus, a fourth century Christian, kind of articulates this, and this is from one of his theological orations. He says that he's greater in terms of source, but not in terms of nature. And so to understand the way that the, the son speaks of the father within the scriptures, I think we have to admit that there are times when he'll speak of the father as greater than him. Or in Corinthians, it will say that, you know, the head of every woman is the man and the head of Christ is God. Or in, in 1 Corinthians 15, when he'll speak of, you know, everything will be subjected to the son. And in turn, the son will be subjected to the father. Um, basically, what I think is happening and what many of the early Christians who articulated this theology long before me are saying is that it's not as if the son is not co-equal or, you know, co-eternal with the father. But it is to recognize that when Christ is speaking, he is doing the will of the father who sent him, not he did not come to seek his own will, but the will of the Father. And by and large, I think this is the way that you make sense of the New Testament. I don't think that it's not dependent on some phrases later created. I think that, you know, just, just to say it crudely, I think the way that people phrased it later on, like Gregory of, of Nazianzus or, or Irenaeus, they're actually just making sense of the way that Jesus spoke about the Father. And that, that I think is the most important point. Um, can, I, can I interject a question before you move on to your next point? Yeah, yeah. So you're talking about these statements where Jesus says the Father is greater than I, um, the head of Christ is God, those kinds of questions. And you're talking about Gregory of Nazianzus, who exists within the context of like post Council of Nicaea, kind of the 50 years in between that and Constantinople for our listeners. If you're going back, that's like when the Nicene Creed was formed, all of that stuff. If you remember back to the history episodes, I, I remember when I was learning about this controversy um and arius was um and arius was using these things to say well therefore the father is greater than the son and he's subordinated and the son is therefore a creature that that whole that whole conversation um i th yeah. thought this is what i got from john bear the guy you're doing um your phd under in his books that i had to read but maybe i misunderstood it i remember this whole conversation being a a difference between interpreting Jesus's words and the Bible's words universally versus interpreting them partitively or in different ways. I'm, I'm trying to use more, more modern language. Um, and, and to, to, to kind of explain what I mean by that, I remember the way they were describing it is, well, when Jesus is saying the father is greater than I, he's speaking about his humanity. And <laughs> when it's speaking about how he's equal with God, it's speaking about his, his divinity. Um, but yeah. what, but what you're saying is that 
when Jesus is saying that the Father is greater than I, you're t- you're still talking about His divinity, but a very specific part of His divinity. And mm-hmm. and I'm 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 wondering in that are, are you therefore rejecting that interpretation that like He's that Jesus is speak- is Jesus not speaking of His humanity there when He says that the Father is greater than I? And 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 why can't we look at Christ, the head of Christ as God as speaking of His humanity? Yeah, well, for you know, if your listeners want to look this up, this is from Revelation thirty. Point seven. So this is very, you know, big section. Actually, in the section, he goes on to say, it's it's in both senses that it's and some some claim that he was talking about his humanity there, but others say he's, you know, he's talking about the source being that. Um, yeah. So I think that yeah, there's a reason he has to ask the Father in John 17 for to, for him to restore the glory which they shared before the foundation of the world. Um, he he is not assuming that you know the father and the son are not equal because all all understandings of the word greater are are not equal what i mean by that is when i say something is greater than i i can mean many things by that mm-hmm. he's greater in the sense of source that's you know it's the word that that uh, or principle or or arche or which from which we get monarchy it's not to say that in time the, the, the father created the son. Now that is chiefly what Arianism is about, that there was a time when the son was not. That's okay. In, that Much of the fourth century was actually a controversy. In fact, Oration 30 is a controversy over Proverbs 8. And how do, how do Christians, how should Christians understand Proverbs 8? And when, when it speaks of the relationship between the father, the son in, in the scriptures, and it's it's not to say just to clarify you know it's not to say that the father created the son but that the source of the son eternally begetting to use the phrase that origin would use is is from the father yeah so does that answer your I'm, i mean i could keep going on that but it's it's not a creation greater than it's a this, he is the source of all greater than the father of all things in heaven on earth as you know paul says in ephesians 3:14 Okay. I, I I guess what I was asking was why can't we look at those passages and just apply them to Jesus's humanity? The reason the father is greater than, than Jesus is because Jesus has a human nature, but there is no way in which he's greater than the son in essence. Sure. I mean, several do. I mean, I, 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 mm-hmm. I don't want to say that but I, I, basically, the main reason I said that is actually just to use the phrase that Gregory Nazianzus uses that he's greater in the sense of source, and so that's that's the that was the oration. You know, he's, he's developing this around 381 around the, the debate, but you can understand that in that way. But I think I think there's a danger of separating what we would call the hypostatic union of of the Son and and of of, of his divine and human natures, and. I think that part of, again, this is the kind of the Western critique of this is, well, that's only focusing on the nature aspect of what Jesus is speaking on. Whereas the East, it's, well, it's not even so much a question because it's all coming from the Father in the first place. And so, of course, in that sense, he's greater than. Um, yeah, it's it's not clear cut because, at least historically in the early church, because, you know, Augustine and, and many others would, would argue adamantly that it's the other way but in in my understanding and in my reading of it when he says that the father is greater than i 
it's because he's getting his source from it. And so you can, I mean, you can, it's not a, it's not a, a very good proof text, so to speak, mm-hmm. in, in, in the sense of you're not going to develop all of your theology from this passage because you can interpret it either way. Okay. I don't think that it brings the clarity that many people try to force upon it. Mm. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you. Uh, I, I, I kind of interjected with, that was almost an objection. Feel free to move on to your, uh, Oh yeah. Yeah. The rest of your persuasion and teaching. Well, if I can give some helpful analogies and these come from, they come from John of Damascus primarily who's, he wrote a work and he's, he was one of the great theologians who wrote and, and evangelized his, you know, the rise of Islam in Palestine and, and in um, Judea and all of the area. And he's writing under Islamic rule. And he wrote a he wrote a great work called an, an exact you know exact exposition of the orthodox faith and by that he doesn't mean just the eastern church but he means the universal the true church um and in that he gives some beautiful analogies and he doesn't come up with these but he kind of expands on analogies that the church used and i want to just share one of them and, and this is one of the main ways i think it's helpful in understanding monarchy is that you know in the same way that if a fire is there it is putting out heat it's putting out light but it, it's the light and the heat, though, and very much the same as the as the fire. We wouldn't call that the self the fire. And he kind of explains the the Trinity in the same sense that you never have a fire without light. You never have a fire without heat. And in the same way, the Father has always been Father of, of the begetter of the Son, and the Spirit has always proceeded from Him. And it would be insane to speak of a fire without heat, a fire without light. In the same way, it would be um, unbiblical to think of the Father without the Son or the Father without the Spirit. And, I mean, many Christians would, would articulate it this way, that the only way that we know God is as Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the way that we actually come to know him is the one who's in the closest relation, you know, the bosom of the Father, who's made him known, who poured himself out for our sake to do the will of the Father, but that actually, if you're going to think of monarchy as source, it is it is like, and it does fall apart, but it is like thinking of a fire putting out heat, putting out light. You don't have one without the other three. Uh, that's that's and it's holding together in the very fact that it has the fatherhood, not that they all have the same exact um, essence, though they do have the same essence. So um, that's that's what John Damascus says, and it, it, I found that to be quite helpful. Now, later on in the centuries, Photius, who, you know, if you go and you read anything about the Filioque controversy, that is going to be the name that comes up very quickly for you. Uh, he wrote, a, he worked on the Holy Spirit, and in that he kind of gives critiques of the Western view, and and as this tension rises, and this becomes historically very important understanding why there's so drastically different views on this, um, it's unclear if it became the reason for the split or if it was kind of exas- you know, it grew because there was so many tensions. And it depends on who you read on, okay, why did the East and West Church split in the 11th century? But Photius, and he's critiquing the kind of the relations view of it and the western view specifically of adding to the creed um i just want to make one point of of what he says and i think that this is this is what hit home for me is that actually okay if you're going to say the nicene creed the way that it has been said since 325 since 381 
that the Father, you know, the, the Spirit proceeds from the Father. That's a biblical phrase. But to add to it that the Spirit also proceeds from the Son is to say that the divine nature between the Father and the Son, and I, I'm just I'm putting this in the way that many would say it, not necessarily the way that the West actually believes. The West does not believe this. But this, to say that the Father and the, and the Son, you know, proceed out the Spirit is to say that the Father and the Son have either a different divine nature than the Spirit, or if the Spirit has that same divine nature, then something must also proceed out of him. Um, because if it is of the divine essence to beget, then the Son also must beget, or else he has a different divine nature. And if it is of the, of the divine nature to proceed from, then it must also be the case that the spirit precedes something else, another spirit, and also the spirit begets a, you know, the son. There's, there's a reason why we don't say that the spirit was the begetter of the father. That's because it's been revealed that the father the, and the son is the only begotten of, of the father, is the only begotten of God. Biblical phrases to use this. So the, the objection becomes more firmly, and I think this summarizes a lot of it, the objection becomes, Okay, we had to know that the Son was begotten of the Father by revelation. That's how we know him as Father. And we had to know that the Spirit proceeded from the Father by revelation. Those are, those are the phrases that Christ used to explain this. And if we had to know those by revelation, how can we say that it is also true that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son? Um, if we can only know that by, by revelation about the Father, how can we know that by revelation about the Son? And so it is, I think, um, unfortunate that the creedal phrase, which is the biblical phrase, was added to. And it took time. I mean, Augustine argues for it. And yeah, it's kind of added in the in the sixth century. But um, more emphatically, it's added in the 11th century in the West to kind of finalize these conflicts between the Eastern and the Western church. And by the time you get to Aquinas, you know, you get to a more um, who's and I, I don't mean to bash Aquinas. I've I've read a considerable amount of him at this point. I read him his commentaries even when I preach through a text. It's the first work I go to. But I think Aquinas was mistaken on this. Well, yeah, who is a fly to a to an elephant, though? I mean, who cares what I think? But I do think he was mistaken in that if you're going to start talking about God as essence before you talk about him as persons, you're reversing the order that it was revealed to us. Um and I'll, I'll just mention this too. Um, the way that the scriptures will speak about the divine essence actually kind of begins with the Father, the fullness of the Father dwelling in Christ. One, one great passage to kind of understand this is in, in Colossians, in particular in Colossians 1.19, the text says that it was the Father's good pleasure for all of his fullness to dwell in him. Okay, why no mention of the Spirit there? Well, because the Father is the source. And then in Colossians 2.9, after that sort of statement, you know, it says that you know, don't be deceived by empty philosophy of, based on elementary principles of this world. For in Christ, the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. Um, so I think that the, as this sort of progression went on, it became more and more polarized between the West and the East. You had people all along saying that you guys are misunderstanding one another. 
So one of my favorite figures, Maximus the Confessor, who spoke Greek and Latin, so he was a very unique bridge uh, in between these two you know, sides. He, he recognizes that the West is adding, but he says that the Greeks are misunderstanding what they mean by it, that it's it's not so much that an ontological meaning that the essence of, of, the, of the Spirit is proceeding from the Father in the same exact way that the Son is. And I don't think the West has, just to be plain, I think the, the only times when the West has spoken clearly on this is whenever it has made that sort of claim. Most of the time, though, it's ambiguous what it means. The Council of Florence, you know, Vatican Council and so forth, I think are, um, by and large, either ambiguous or claiming things they should not claim. Now, I say that as a product of the West and as someone who benefited from them, I'm not trying to say that they're all heretics and, you know, we should all reject them as brothers and sisters, but I am saying that um, I am unwilling to speak of the Trinity in, in a way that is contrary to the way that it has been revealed. And of course, both sides would say that, but that's, that's why I, I'm arguing what I'm arguing. I think it's consistent with the scriptures and the tradition. Just to mention one other figure um, that listeners might be interested in is Gregory Palamas. I mean, so he's he is kind of the the superstar of the middle aged Eastern Church. I mean, he's the one of the great fathers of what are known as kind of three almost you know, ecumenical councils of the triads, where he he argues for kind of the the stillness of heart and a whole bunch of other things about the spirit and. <clears throat> They're very, they're very careful to to say that, yeah, you, we can speak of the Spirit proceeding only from the Father, but it is also accurate to say that it proceeds through through the Son. So not from the Son, but through the Son, which is the biblical phrase. Again, this is how John's Gospel speaks of this. So I'm very open to say that. Now, the modern de depiction of this, and, and modern kind of Eastern and Western colliding, I mean, this is a very unique time when it's very well it's easy to find out what the east actually believes about something you have people in the 20th century like vladimir lasky who were so opposed to the west that they kind of took a militant adamant view of the filioque and, and they kind of just to critique him i think he falsely portrayed the west as saying things that the west was never trying to say and that's that's true of many people in the 20th century who were so um careful to not adapt Western thinking, that they actually made the West say things they were never trying to say. Now, the greatest example, and I think the most, the view that it's almost identical to the one that I take, can be found in Callistus, where one of the, in my judgment, I mean, one of the greatest, greatest thinkers of, of 20th, certainly the 20th century, but in his book on the Orthodox Church, now, he even critiques some of the Orthodox theologians as, as saying the same thing, that the West is, we're making the West say things they never were trying to. And he he goes as far as to say that there's actually hope of union between the two if if we can try to get past, well, the West must say this if they believe this. Well, the East must say this. They must be subordinates. They must be Aryans. They must be Sibelians. They must, you know, whatever whatever attack we want to lay at one another, I think just to put it in terms of Ludwig Wittgenstein, that the meaning of words isn't how they're used. Monarchy is not to say that the, that just whatever we want it to say, but how is the, how has the Eastern Church understood that? And primarily it's been about source and it's been about um, the proceeding and begetting.
that's how the the east has believed it and that's why i'm i'm fully convinced that the trinity holds together in the person of the father not the way that the western view has is, is in the in the nature of of the godhead so can i clarify something yes please um and you've mentioned this a couple times and i'm trying to i'll need you to fill in a gap here because i don't remember quite exactly what you said but you said if you're speaking around the time you're talking about aquinas you said if you're speaking of the essence of the trinity before the i can't remember quite what you said the person the persons okay if you're speaking of the essence of the trinity before the perverse persons then you're reversing the order in which this was revealed to us and yeah. so and this is something that I've seen John Bear argue for in his commentary on John. Um, well, I guess it's not a commentary. He hates it. He, yeah, he would critique that. He said it's not a commentary. Yeah. It's theology that he's deriving from the Gospel of John. Um, but why is that important? Why is it important that we start with the persons as they've been revealed to us? Yeah. And I've got a follow-up after that, if it's okay, yeah. Ian. Yes, that's a great question. I think... Uh, the basic answer is, well, how do we know who God is? Well, we the only way that we know the Father, the, the only way that we know who God is, is as the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, mm -hmm. He came to testify of the, of the will of the Father and to make him known to us. And so actually, the way that the scriptures sort of begin with this is that, yeah, the Word was with God and the Word was God. But the only way that we get to that point, the only way that we come to that understanding is by seeing the Son and, and knowing the Father through that, and and the Spirit revealing to us what the Scriptures say, testifying about the Son, who called God his Father. And so, whatever we say about the nature of the God, the single God, you know, is is only known through the Son and the Spirit, and is, is made known about the Father. Um, I think just to, you know, not to, not to rehash something, something I didn't mention, that it may might be helpful there's a long long story behind what's known as the athanasian creed um but the athanasian creed actually articulates it in this exact way when it says that you know the father is begotten and proceeds from no one so it even makes a distinction between the father and that but the the begetting of the son as least in terms that it's been revealed is that we we see jesus we see the son who was sent by the father and the Son makes the Father known to us. And it's only in understanding it in those terms that we begin to understand who God is. And so it begins with the personhoods of, of, the, of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. The Spirit reveals to us that we can call him our Father. Okay, and this might lead into something that you said earlier that I also wanted to clarify. Uh, you, you mentioned that this has a practical effect where if you start with the essences uh, or the essence of the Godhead instead of the persons, then it's, um, it means that the persons kind of, you don't have a valid reason for saying that there's only three rather than four or more. And that effectively, it sounds like leads to pantheism. So was yeah. that your point earlier? And is that, how do you, is that kind of the, what's at stake here and the, the big picture? I, I do think so, yes. Now, again, this, you can make the West say, well, they must be pantheists if they hold this view. And no one is saying that. And the West is not pantheist yeah. by any stretch of the imagination. Now, I think logically that's where it leads to. Hmm. To say, I mean, if you're going to say that the proceeding of the Spirit is within the nature of God, 
then you must say that the Spirit has that same nature. Now, just to, to clarify my own position on this, I think that the preceding and the begetting are unique to the persons, not to the nature. Or else you must say that the Son begets his own Son, and, the, and that Son begets his own Son, because they all possess the same nature. But if you uniquely qualify that characteristic to the personhood of the Father, then you have a trinity that holds together because the Father's personhood is to proceed and to beget of the same nature. Yeah. So one more follow-up, if it's all right. Um, can this understanding or misunderstanding um, explicitly or implicitly, more importantly, implicitly is what I'm, I'm concerned about, affect the way that we pray, the way that we... Uh, act ethically the way that we think in terms of the scripture that we it can it mess with the way that our minds are conformed to the scripture and and thus affect our salvation in some i'm more concerned with the implicit ways but um you know the explicit ways as well if they're more obvious yeah, yeah. well i'm just to say again and i i hope i'm sounding like a you know a broken record i don't think the west is is heretical in the sense that they're denying the true God or, mm -hmm. or that they're un incapable of attaining more and more salvation. But I do think that this plays out in the day-to-day -day life when I call God my Father. Now, explicit in that, how am I able, and I, I, how am I able to call God my Father? Just plain and simple. I'm able to call God my Father because the Son became my brother, and because I have received through the Son the spirit of adoption. When I call God Father, it is only because he is in three persons that I'm able to call God my Father. Now, that is, that's, the, that's the message, I think, of Romans 8, that the spirit of Christ who is in you is giving life to your mortal body and allowing us to call God our Father. And I think that when Jesus teaches us to pray, why does he say, you know, why do we begin the prayer? with our Father who are in heaven. In the same way that Paul in Ephesians 3.14, probably the most prayed prayer I have for my own context as a pastor, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every name in heaven and on earth derives its name, every family. Um, to begin by calling God the Father recognizes, and it is dependent upon the Son and the Spirit. It's dependent upon that in order to call God the Father. But it is starting out to pray in the way that Jesus taught us to pray. And it is the way that the apostles prayed. And it is the way that the creeds, the early creeds, are formulated. That we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's, you know, this sort of language is in the New Testament where Paul will say, kind of emphatically, that there is for us only one God, the Father. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Um, he'll even call the Father, you know, the blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, in that sort of genitive grammatical way of, in some way, the Father is, is the God of Jesus Christ. Now, again, it's one of those phrases that you can't just take it and say, well, this is what it must mean. You can apply sort of different parameters of thinking about it. But yeah, I, I do think, to get back to the original point, I think the day-to-day -day life, when I understand my relationship between myself and the Father, I understand that there's a mediator and that there's a spirit mm. groaning within me. And that when I relate to the Father and I call him my Father, 
It is only because of the Lord Jesus Christ mediating, mm -hmm. and it is only because of the Spirit who allows me to, with confidence, approach the throne. So yeah, it's how I understand myself and my identity is directly connected to the fact that I am a son of God. So Irenaeus has this beautiful line. I'm sorry, I'm quoting him a lot. I, I really love him, but Irenaeus has this beautiful line in his in his against heresies where he says that the Son of Man became the Son of or the Son of God became Son of Man, so that we might all be called sons of God. Mm. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of understanding those two phrases together. And 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 by and large, I I hold that I have become by adoption what he is by nature, you know, the son of you know, or by his personhood. <laughs> to be more precise with our conversation. Um, so I, I've come to understand that when I call God my father, it is necessitating the entire story of salvation. Okay. That's the biggest one. All right. Anything else you want to share with us before we get into the pushback, objection kind of stuff? Yeah. Um, well, just to, just to make one other point out, um, one one analogy, and I, I wrote this one down just so I wouldn't forget this, one analogy that might be helpful for listeners to kind of think through these words is causation, even in a kind of an Aristotelian sense, and Aquinas would make this point, is, is not always the same meaning, that there's actually different types of causes. And so when I say that the the Father is the cause or source of the, of the Son and the Spirit, it's much like I'm saying, again, the analogies always, always, always break down, but it is like I'm saying that the shadow is caused by the body. Okay. Now, everything that my shadow does is a direct result of the body, and it's in a sense it finds its source and its cause in the body. But it is, but it's not the other way around. We would never say the shadow is the cause of the body. We would always say, you know, and I would even refer to that shadow as my shadow. And, but that we wouldn't do the reverse. And I think the exact same is, is true in a sense of, of the son and the father, that we would never say the son is the cause of the father, but we would say that the father is the cause. And so I just wanted to share that analogy because when you kind of break it down in that way, it, it can help that you don't think of cause in a sort of lesser than and subordinate in nature and, and all of that. That's not, a, that's not all what the fathers are talking about. Mm -hmm. yeah. All right. Well, um, kind of the second part of this conversation is I, I've done some reading of my own um, and come up with some some pushback questions. I've also asked multiple other people uh, who know way more than me. Uh, and I, I've kind of come up with a list of, of five objections that someone might make to a monarchy model. I'm not saying these are all of them. These are just the ones that I'm sharing. Uh, and I'm just going to go one by one. Um, and just at, at each one, I'll give you an opportunity to say whatever you want to say to it. Um, Objection one, and this is probably the biggest question, and this is also a question that's going to echo in a number of the other ones. This is kind of the core issue that people take, I feel like, is this. How is monarchy not subordinationism? Uh, this is something that you articulated uh, multiple times, and you were even speaking about how we sometimes make the other side say what they're not actually saying. So the West isn't actually pantheists and the East isn't actually subordinating um, the sun or Aryan in any way. We're not actually saying that they're creations. Um, mm -hmm. But when we hear analogies like fire and light and heat and like one is the thing and the others, 
you can call them the thing, but only because they participate in the real thing or the shadow is, is caused by the body. It, it gives this idea that like one is the real thing and the others, they, they get to participate in some sense. Um, yeah. how is that not subordinationism? Yeah. Um, I think too, kind of, I'll answer the question obviously, but I think part of the, the reverse could be said too. Okay. If, if, um, how is it that it's not three gods? Well, because it's all finding in the source of the Father. I mean, to, just to put that out there. But as to your actual question, again, we kind of have to understand what we mean by subordinate. Subordinate in the, in the biblical idea, there is one instance in 1 Corinthians 15. I've quoted this, but um, I'd encourage your listeners to go look at this. When it speaks about all things being placed under the feet of Christ, and then Christ in turn being placed um, under the, in some sense, uh, under the Father. That doesn't mean, this, you know, it doesn't name, name that he's not equal with, or subordination does not mean that their nature is not equal, or, you know, equality of the Father of Philippians 2.6, so to speak, you know, who did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, you know, empty, you know poured himself out, gnosis and all that. Um it's not to deny that there's there's equality there, but it is to say, but in the order of how the source works, the way that the scriptures have portrayed it, um, I don't see in, that it necessitates kind of this, well, he's he's his nature is lesser than the Father. But I think, true, if you're going to make phrase of all that the scriptures say about this, you have to find a way of explaining how the Son is, place, is handing over the authority, how... He is given authority by the Father, and he in turn hands it all back to the Father. And that's not to say that he is you know, a lesser God or that he's a created being, that there was a time when he did not exist. See, that's the whole controversy around Proverbs 8 with Arius and Arianism, is that, okay, does this mean that the Son is created? And no, it, you know, Origen and many others would make it very clear that the Son is eternally begotten, so to answer the question, it's not um, a subordination that it's not within the personhood of the son to be um, subordinate by nature. Um, but I do think that there's a biblical understanding of kind of the order of operations within the Trinity. The father is the one who sends the son. Okay. And the spirit, uh, the son asks the father and the son, they both you know, proceed in a sense, they, they go through one another and we had that whole controversy. So I won't explain that one right now, but they, they come from the son. And so actually the, the, the order of the Trinity, the father, son, and the Holy spirit is the way that it's revealed. I had just a, just a side story, but so that we can have somewhat of a understanding and kind of in a funny way, how this plays out. Um, a couple months ago, I, I baptized a grandfather and, he got out of the water and then he baptized his two grandkids. And when he baptized one of his grandkids, um, he fumbled on his words and he accidentally said, in the name of the son and the father and the spirit. And it was, you know, this massive pause of, wait, we, gotta, we go back, we gotta go back and clarify that. Why has it been revealed that the, that God is, you know, that, the, that we should baptize the name of the father, son, and the Holy spirit. Well, because the father sends the son and, and through the son, we have the spirit. And so it's not a sense of subordination that it's ordered that way in the sense of they have a different nature, but there is a sense in which you need to start with the father or else you don't have the sending of the son. 
Now, you only know that because the Son was sent. You only know that because the Spirit has adopted you and allowed you to call God your Father. But to say that it is subordinate, which, you know, any good Western thinker, any good, you know, not, I don't mean this in a pejorative way, but, you know, any, any uh, disciple of, of uh, Aquinas um, is, is not going to say, well, the East thinks that the Son is subordinate by nature. I mean, no, they're not going to say that. They're going to say much more inclined that it's, it will lead people to subordination or it will lead to this. And I, I, I want to make this point as clearly as I know how to say it. Just because a truth can be misused does not mean that we need to deny the truth. And that would be a massive problem because all of the truth of what Christ has revealed about the Father can be misused. All of it can. And so to say that it can lead to something, I think is, it's not an argument for denying that it's true or not true. Can I actually throw in something here? Yes. And Ian, I, you can tell me if this is too off the point, but it's something that I've thought about in the background a lot because there's this, there are these issues with complementarianism and maybe you've heard about Wayne Grudem's view of the Trinity where he does seem to take a interpretation of, I think it's 1 Corinthians 11, where the son is subordinate to the father in a way that um, almost seems to deny co-equality or something like that. Um, and he argues this way, and I think, uh, oh, there's someone else with him who does this as well, but he argues this way because he's trying to argue for complementarianism and this idea of women in subjection to men and stuff like that. And he's got a lot of kickback. Um, so how is what he's doing different from what you're doing? Or is he, is he doing the subordinationist stuff? Um, is he actually doing subordinationism? Are you familiar with this thing? So it just seems to fit real, what real you're quick, talking about. Before you answer that question, no, Alec, that's not off the point. Um, but I am going to interrupt and add my question that I was about to ask to yours, because I think they're all connected and I'm just going to let you respond to all of it however you want. Okay, um, yeah. this is, this is off the cuff. It may not be fair and you can totally say it's not fair, but as you were talking about, um, how the father and the son, there, there, there are distinctions within them, um, but that doesn't mean that they're not equal. What came to my mind was a term that was used to justify segregation during the civil rights movement, separate but equal. And when we historically made those kinds of distinctions and then said, well, but that doesn't, that, 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 that doesn't mean that they're less than, we found out later in history, well, actually, it kind of still was. Y you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, we can say that the son isn't subordinated to the father, or we can say that black people aren't subordinated to white people um, historically back then, the way that things were going on. But effectively, we could look at it and still say, but that's kind of still what's happening, isn't it? Yeah. 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 I think, you know, one of one of the passages that is most helpful for me and I had Mormons come to my my house show up at my door and we talked about this passage for hours is, is the Hebrews 1 passage of the, the father speaking to the son and in Hebrews 1 really 6 through 8 is the key part but you know God in the past God spoke in many this, the beginning of Hebrews God spoke in many ways to the prophets in many ways but now he's spoken to the son but then you get to verse 6 and comparing the angels with the son he says this but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, you know, the scepter of your right hand and, and all of that. 
he uses the word there, you know, and let all of God's angels worship him. And you don't you don't say that about anyone else but God. And that's you don't call anyone else God but God. And I think we have to understand that when the scriptures speak, it explicitly does refer to the Son as God, as Christ as God, but it also refers to him as with God. And I think that um I think that there's there's a misunderstanding that we can kind of start with this view that um okay in, in the Trinity um we know the Father first and then we know the Son and then we know this you know and all this to the Spirit but but it's all it's all done because the Spirit helped with the Scriptures the Son reveals the Scriptures and in and in Christ and seeing and seeing Christ in the Scriptures actually it's revealed to us is the Father and in, in my judgment um. In my judgment, kind of to bring it back to the subordinates controversy, and you can you can keep pressing me on this as much as you'd like, but um, to make sense of what all of the scriptures say, you have to be willing to be comfortable with the language of there is for us only one God and one Lord, Jesus Christ. Um, and I, I think for me that that's that's what i keep coming back to again and again and and i don't even know if there's a more specific point on it's a big question so if if, if you want to press on one particular aspect of it um i'm hope i'm happy to do so no i i think you answered it just fine um and and there will be more specific ways that i press as we get into the, the other objections um so objection two uh, this this content comes from anselm of canterbury the medieval theologian uh, but where I actually got this from was Matthew Barrett's Simply Trinity book. Um, this is a quote from him. He says, without the filioque, the spirit would not be given by the son, but the son would be given by the spirit. So, so scripture says that Jesus is born of the Holy Spirit. And one of the objections we can make is that when we reject the filioque, it seems to imply that we're okay with saying that the son is from the spirit in some sense, but we're not okay with saying that the spirit is from the son in some sense. And maybe this is a form of subordinating the son under the spirit in some way. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a, I mean, from Anselm, it's before, even before too, there's, there's massive controversies. Just to summarize kind of the response that the East brought up is, well, you're doing the exact same thing with subordinating the spirit to the son. Is the spirit subordinated to the, to the son? Um, no. Okay. Then why does he proceed from the father and the son? And do they possess something that the spirit doesn't? And I'll, I'll not to detract, but I, I want to press on this point because I think it's, I think it's part one of the more persuasive parts of the argument is that unless you're willing to say that the spirit has a different nature than the father and the son, then you must say that it is not within the nature of God that something that the spirit proceeds from him. Okay, so it must proceed. That's why I'm saying it's from the father. Now to say that it's that makes the son subordinate. I just don't, I don't find that particularly convincing for kind of for the same reasons. Um, you know, we do have in the scriptures that this the son the spirit proceeds through the son. You know, and I'll and I will send the spirit. I'll ask the Father, and 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 we will send him. And and even in John fourteen, kind of earlier, I believe verse twenty three, he makes a very strong statement that can confuse many people if you're just reading through it. He says, you know, um, the Father and I will come and make our abode in you. It's like, what are you talking about? Well, I, I just, I think, I think the, the basic overview of understanding all of this is that to have the spirit that proceeds from the father is to have the spirit of Christ. 
which is to have the spirit by which we call God our Father. Um, yeah, I, I don't think that there's anything wrong with the language that the spirit proceeds through the Son. The, the problem is, for me, is it is massively different to say that it proceeds through something than it proceeds from something. One is a biblical phrase. The other one is added. Now, adding phrases to the Bible to help understand the Bible is not bad. Or it's not heresy to do that. But it is to say that if you're going to you know, use that term as if it's been revealed, then I think the higher standard, and I sound like a good Protestant here, I think the higher standard should be what is the revealed word, and let's work from that to come up with the other words, not the reverse. And yeah, so you could say the same thing with the, the birth of Christ, that the Spirit you know, hovered over and, and entered into the womb of Mary, and and in a sense is... is um, in, you know, coming from in some sense, but to say that it's begetting, that 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 you know that the spirit entering the womb of 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 Mary is the begetting of of uh, you know the Son of God, that I think is is a different word than what the scriptures use. And so, to summarize, I think the the answer to the question is well, because that's not how the the Bible uses those words. You know, it's we keep using those words, but they don't mean what we think they mean. Mm -hmm. My name is Inigo Montoya. Yeah, yeah. I thought of that. You as misrepresented I the Trinity. Yeah. Prepare to have a peaceful conversation. Yeah. Um, all right. Objection three. This question is definitely not original to me. I just learned it a couple of days ago and it blew my mind, uh, but I'll share it with you. Uh, what are the acceptable ways to use the word God? And, and the reason I ask this question is because of the way I think you're reading scripture. Please correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, but one of the things that was pointed out to me is that whenever the Bible has God as the subject of the sentence, it's always referring to the father. Uh, whenever the son and the spirit are referenced as God, it's always the predicate. So like the word was God speaking of God, the son, or mm -hmm. when Peter says you have not lied to men, but to God, um, speaking to Ananias in the book of Acts, he's speaking about the spirit and that's a predicate. Uh, but every time it's, but every time God is the subject, it's speaking about the father specifically. And what I think I might be picking up because of that is this idea that the father is most properly called God and the son and the spirit are God. Uh, but when we use the word God plainly, we only can use it to refer to the father. Um, is that the case? Is that kind of what you're doing? And if so, how is that not subordinationism again for the third time? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I do think, I mean, if you want it to sound that way, you can make it, you can, you can make it sound support, you know, in a sense of the, the son and the spirit are lesser than the father in a, nature you can make it say that but I, I don't think that it necessitates that sort of language i do think that when the scriptures speak um it is it's christ revealing the father now if i can go back to hebrews for a moment to answer the question hebrews doesn't just begin by saying you know god spoke in the prophets now he's spoken to us through the son but it says that the son this is a, this is a very strong language is the exact representation of his nature or to use the phrase that as the the imprint on the coin. So, as as uh, Colossians one fifteen would say that the Son is the image of the invisible God. So who is God in that sentence? Because it's not referring to the Son. Um, now the Father's he goes on in four verses. The Father's fullness dwells in him. The play Roma the Father dwelled in him, and he was divine, absolutely hundred percent. But the image of the invisible God. Meaning that when we see Christ, to quote Christ's words, we see the Father. 
it's in this sense that I say when we look at the scriptures, we're looking for, well, how Christ reveals the Father, how the Spirit who led the scriptures and who is working within us to understand the scriptures helps us see Christ. And in seeing Christ, what we're supposed to be seeing is the Father. And so in this sense, and, and really uniquely to this sense, when the scriptures speak of God, it's referring to the Father. Because if you see Christ, you're, it's not supposed to stop at the Son. You're supposed to stop when you understand who the Father is through Christ. Um, and so in that sense, I would think it's, I think it's entirely biblical to understand it in that way because the Son is the image of God, because he's the exact representation of his nature. Now, the fact, to, to make a point I haven't yet, why is it important of all of this? Why am I holding on to the, to the core idea that they have the same essence, the same nature? Well, because Christ is not revealing a different God. And the fact that he's coming from the Father means that unless Christ is revealing exactly what it means to be God, then we have zero inclination of who the Father is. If he himself does not have the same nature, we don't know who the Father is. But because he has the same nature, and because you know he is from the Father, begotten of the Father, when we see him, we're invited to see the Father. And we're told, you've been with me so long and you don't know. When you see me, you see the Father. So, I think it's in that sense that the scriptures, when they're when they're speaking about it, speak of the Father. It's it's not in the kind of the the way that it could be taken of well, it's the, at the exclusion of the Father and at, at the exclusion of the Son and at the exclusion of the Spirit. No, when I read the Father in the scriptures, it necessitates the Son and the Spirit always. But it's it's only because I have the Son that I know the Father, and only because I have the Spirit that I call Him Father. But it's 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 for the sake of revealing who the Father is to us. Yeah. All right. Objection four. Um, one of the big claims of the Eastern Church or anyone who who holds to the monarchy view is is the claim that this is the biblical view. Um, but to be fair to the West, there are passages that are used to teach the filioque, and so one of the things I want to do is read through five of them. Uh, there's a couple that I excluded, but just I didn't want to be redundant over and over again. Uh, so I wanted to read these passages to you and give you an opportunity to to interpret them. And, and we're going to do them all in a bulk just because I think they're all kind of getting at the same thing. And I have a feeling that you're going to have basically the same response to all of them. Uh, actually, Alec, would you be willing to, to read these passages for us? Yeah, yeah, that's fine with me. So John 14, 25 through 26. All of this I have spoken while still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. John 15, 26. When the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. John 16, 7. But very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. John 16, 14 through 15. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said to the Spirit, uh, said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. Galatians 4, 6. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, 
Abba, Father. I mean, it, if I can just anticipate your answer, it seems like all those verses would still say from the Father through the Son. The sending is through the Son, but the thing that's being sent is from the Father. Would yeah. that be your reply, basically? Yeah, yeah I mean, that's that's, exa that's exactly right. It's like, all right, I, I, I mean, those passages are... I, I don't say this to sound like a smart aleck. I mean, that's exactly what I believe all of those passages, exactly how they're phrased. But yeah, I would not change them. <laughs> when I was reading those passages, I was like, is this an objection? Or is this just like, like you could read the same well, thing yourself, it feels like. You know, and the East has, has tried, I think, to historically, the, the nicer Easter Christians, the ones that are a little more, they're not saying this, but you guys need to change it or else, you know, this will this is what it will lead to. Gregory Palamas, I think, is probably one of the, the greater aspects of this. You know, he's he's aggressive when he needs to be, but on this point, he he concedes. You know that the spirit is is from the Father, but it's always through the Son. I mean, it's how is it that in the Scriptures Jesus says, "Unless I go, the Spirit can't come." Well, because it's through the Son. It's it's um in a, in a sense, this is the whole revelation of of the Father, Son, and the Spirit to us that. The Father sent the Son, the Son sent the Spirit, and by that we know who we're talking about. It's it's how we call God our Father. So I, I think I think it's it's not so much a point that the West and the East even need to disagree on. I mean, if you get some militant in the East that might object to that, um, but you have others who are you know well-respected metropolitans who are saying actually know you're misrepresenting what they're saying. And I would just fully agree with them that you, again, you can, you can make them say all sorts of things if you want to, but it's, it's not necessary. And it's, it's not saying that those texts do not say that the sun or that the spirit proceeds from the sun. They just, there are no passages that say that. And, and really in the early church, you know, it takes 375 years for someone to suggest that. I think it's just, that's like a significant point. But so, Ian, can I ask an off-the-cuff question about? Sure. Uh, this is not an objection. This is a follow-up that came to my mind. Do you think that the order is important? And I'm trying to phrase this properly. It's not. It's coming out a little rough. Ephesians chapter one, verse ten is one of my favorite verses. All things are summed up in Christ, and there's this idea of recapitulation, you know, that's an Irenaeus term, where the sun is the summary content and therefore the archetype, the thing that makes all of humanity what humanity is in reality. It gives it its true substantial character, the sun does. Mm -hmm. And if the sun hadn't become man prior to the spirit being sent, it seems like we wouldn't be the type of being that could even receive the spirit to begin with. Is that yeah. kind of it? Do you think that that's something that's at stake within the filioque controversy? I get if it. it's framed yeah. improperly, if it's framed in the, you know, yeah, it, it certainly can be. Yeah. Again, it's how are we using the terms? And once I hear kind of how someone, what they mean by it, again, this is, 
this is just as important as using, I think, the correct terms even more so is that we use them in the way they're intended. And I think that in the West, you can make that the, make that the problem, but I don't think the West necessarily has that problem unless you kind of force yourself down that, yeah. that trend. Yeah. But ultimately, though, the logic would be we receive the Spirit because our natures have been transformed by the coming of Jesus. And so the order is important because it would teach that. That's what I'm getting at. Yeah. Uh, my participation in Christ, in him, Second Peter 1 says, you know, that's how I have participation with the divine nature. Now, how do I become in Christ? Well, the same spirit that was hmm. at work in resurrecting Christ. This is all Romans 8. Great chapter to summarize this. If the spirit who is at work in Christ is at work in you, you'll give life to your mortal bodies. I think what's happening is that the spirit is doing in me what Christ did. And, you know, the father was at work in the son in, in that sense. And that what what is happening in my life as I participate in Christ the most common, by the way, the most common phrase for understanding who I am is not as a Christian, it's a couple times in the New Testament, but it's, I'm in Christ, that's who I am. I am a son of God as a result, because he became like me. Not to detract too much, but again, this is the argument of Hebrews chapter 2, where the text says that he, uh, he had to be made like them, his brothers, fully human in every way, so that he might you know, become a high priest. Since they shared in flesh and blood, he also partook of the same. Both phrases are used in Hebrews too. And I think all of that is completely dependent on Christ became my brother so that I can receive the spirit of adoption and, and, and truly be called the son of God. And, and in that sense, the God is my father. And so, yeah, if it sounds like I'm rehashing that point, it's because all of it comes into the order that it's been revealed. Christ came and the spirit descended upon him in many places and different times but it was it was the son's revealing of the father and the son's revealing of what the spirit would do that we are able to understand any of this yeah all right well i have uh one final objection to share and this is sort of a follow-up to to the scripture passages oftentimes the way the conversation goes is at least in my experience is the east says the Bible teaches this. The West says, well, actually, there's these passages over here. And then the East retorts by saying, well, those passages aren't really talking about like eternal processions and like what's them in their essence and how it all works. It's talking about more of a missional thing. Jesus is talking about how he's going to send the spirit. <laughs> and, and I always found that persuasive, but there is a response from a Western Christian, again, Matthew Barrett in his book, Simply Trinity, that that I have found as the most persuasive retort to that retort. So I want to share an extended quote with you and then say a little bit and then let you let you respond to it. Yeah. This is what Barrett says. He says, some will object that Jesus does not refer to eternity, but to the Father and the Son sending the Spirit at Pentecost. Jesus is not talking about processions within the Trinity, but the Spirit's descent in creation for the purpose of salvation. But as we've learned, this objection is short-sighted, a type of narrow, crude biblicism that fails to read Jesus's words in view of the whole Bible. That is God's redemptive plan across all of history, or in light of who the triune God is in eternity. Such a disconnect between the temporal missions and eternal relations is foreign to Jesus, as seen in John 15, 26, when he grounds the sending of the Spirit in the procession of the Spirit from the Father. 
yes, there is a difference between eternal relations within the Trinity and temporal uh, missions within creation. We dare not confuse the two. But it is a step too far to restrict the temporal missions from revealing the eternal relations. While we should not project everything in the mission of the Son or the Spirit onto the eternal trinity, nevertheless, it would be extreme to conclude that such missions do not mirror eternal relations in one specific way. The only reason the Spirit can be sent by the Father and the Son to save all lost humanity is because he proceeds from the Father and the Son from all eternity. So to summarize that big, huge quote, um, yes, there is a difference between like a temporal mission, the Spirit being sent at Pentecost, and eternal relations that just kind of have always existed. But God works the way that he does because of these eternal relations of origin. Uh, for example, we say that Jesus is God's only begotten son. And the reason that we can say that is because of an eternal relation of origin. From eternity, the son has been the only begotten son of the father. And that's why he is the one who became the man that we call Jesus. And we would never go the other way. Uh, you even said something along the, along these lines earlier. Like we would never say that like the father is begotten of the son. Um, and this is why the son is the man. Uh, this is why the son became the man that we call Jesus and not the father. And and if that is how God works and the Bible says that the son sends the spirit, then why shouldn't we say that the spirit proceeds from the father through the son or from the father and the son? Why wouldn't that sending reflect their eternal relations in the same way that we see it works in other areas. Mm -hmm. does, does that all make sense? That was a big, huge, loaded question. I know. <laughs> yeah. uh, let me let me talk for a moment. And it, if if it if I start to answer a question that's not the one you're asking, just just tell me. Okay. okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so I think probably in my mind when I and I've and I've heard this sort of argument before. I think my mind immediately goes to okay. Why is the spirit not called the son? Why, you know, in time, the father says, you know, at his baptism or on on the the Mount of Transfiguration, he says, you know, this is my son. You know, he speaks of he speaks of Christ as the son. Okay. In my judgment, that's that's there's no problem there and i don't think the west is saying this again but i i do think that there's a reason we don't call the spirit you know in the same sense that the son is the son of god um and there's also there's also a reason that and i i think to get to the heart of this there's a reason i don't say that the son proceeds from the father or that the spirit is begotten of the father okay if i'm going to add that the spirit proceeds from the father and the son because of nature then I must be willing to add that the spirit is begotten of the father because of nature or else it's, it's not. A, and I think the more reasonable conclusion, and I think the logical way of approaching this and the way of dealing with this traffic, traffic, uh, lacking the word of, of this travesty that it's an argument, but it, it, it is that it's not, it's the relationship between the father and the son is different than the relationship between the spirit and the father it, and it's not based on nature it must be based on personhood this is the john john damascus emphatically talks about the difference between the son and the spirit is one is begotten one proceeds and he goes on to say just to give a caveat what's the difference between begetting and proceeding we don't know <laughs> so we don't know what that is and if we don't know that and it's 
then why are we willing to say that you know the son uh, beget is begotten of the father but we're not willing to say again because it's not by nature but it's by personhood we're not willing to say that the son proceeds from the father why would we not want to say that and my my immediate pushback is okay if you want to say that um the spirit proceeds from the father and the son are you willing to say that the son is proceeding from the father why not well because again not to be snarky but because we know better <laughs> we know it's not based on the nature but it's on the personhood of the father i am unwilling to say that this the spirit proceeds from the son in the same way that it proceeds from the father you know because um because I don't think that that's how the nature of God has been revealed. I know the nature of God based on the persons of God. And instead of starting with the nature and trying to apply that to all three persons, I start with how Christ has revealed the Father. And I believe that that allows me to call him my Father. Now, again, and I, I'm, I'm sorry if I'm beating a dead horse here, but I want to push this as hard as I possibly can to make my point, not not aggressively, but just rhetorically that i'm not willing to say that the son proceeds from the father in the exact same way i am not willing to say that the spirit proceeds from the father and the son only the father well and to be fair to the western church both like catholics and protestant christians and ancient western christians like augustine there there's a lot of people who think about this in the church who expressly say that when we say the father and the son, we don't mean in the same way. There is a more primary way in the father and the sure. language from the father through the son is probably more accurate in what we actually mean. You mentioned like Maximus, the confessor saying that's actually what they mean. When, when Augustine writes about it, he says it that way. A lot of Catholics that I've listened to express it that way too. Yes. Which is why to go back to my original point, from way earlier when the west speaks clearly about this i think they say something they shouldn't and when they speak ambiguously they sound like the east <laughs> i just and i don't i'm not trying to say that in a starky way but you know yeah there's there is some ambiguous texts but i don't think there has to be the ambiguity there hmm. so the solution is we need to change the word another time go from nothing <laughs> to and the sun to through the sun right maybe uh, i would i would absolutely i mean when i say the creed and i'm part of a tradition that you know we don't use creeds as tests of fellowship but i i i love the creeds and it's the good ones i mean no one accepts all the early creeds because many of them were written against one another so i, I accept some of them and like nicaea or constantinople and those those creeds i don't think they need to be added to if we're not using them as and this is a bigger different point but if i'm not using that as a test of fellowship in the first place why would i take a historical creed add words and then pretend like that's what they've been saying from the beginning hmm. yeah yeah and i was just saying that's, that tongue-in-cheek anyways but yeah yeah well and uh, again and again and again the west is not teaching i think some monstrous heresy at all but I think logically that's not how it's not just about calling out heresy. It's about how do we, how do we call God our father? And I think 
I think the way forward is, is precisely the way that you described it, suggested by many from Photius Gregor Palamas onward, that we believe that the Son proceeds from the Father through the Son. Yeah, and that's how it's been revealed. And the best of Eastern and Western thought, I think, holds that firmly. Mm -hmm. Well, I have no other objections or follow-up questions or anything like that. Alec, do you have anything else that you want to ask? No, I don't. Okay. Uh, Andy, do you have anything else you want to add? Something you wish we asked you? Oh, so so no, um, but if I can just say this last word again, and I've, I think I've said it three or four times here, but I, I just, I really want to hammer home on this point that um, why are we unwilling to say that the son proceeds from the father? I would just, I would leave that with listeners. Okay. Well, if that's what you want to leave with listeners, then we will leave that with the listeners. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thanks, guys.